Our sermon today is taken from Acts 2, verse 29 to 37. Here is the word of God. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus got raised up, and of that we all are witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus, whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Thus says the Lord. Let us pray for the preaching of God's word. Heavenly Father, you are a great and awesome God. And you generously provide for us all that we need, Lord. Yet we often forget you and we often dismiss the fact that you are Lord of all and present with us here in our lives. But Lord, in your grace, you have come to us in your word and you also send your Holy Spirit to us that we may understand it. Father, as we study the sermon of your servant Peter today, um, I pray that you can give us ears to hear, Lord that we may learn about your son and have that knowledge not only stay in our heads, but affect us in our hearts that we may truly come to an appreciation as best as we can of the majesty of who he is. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, I might be overly sensitive because I do work for church full time, right? but over the years, I cannot think of another religion that has had a worse reputation than Christianity. From the accusations that we are this backwards, bigoted cult, uh, reminding us of the spectacular moral failures of the church and its leaders, and to the genuinely shocking opinion of a very loud and belligerent minority labeling themselves as Christians. So to be fair, though, we Christians have admittedly given the world a lot of things to criticize us and ridicule us about. But despite all the problems people might have with Christians and Christianity, interestingly, most people are cool with Jesus. In fact, most major religions would happily claim Jesus as one of their exemplary figures. Okay, Muslims and Jehovah's Witnesses um, claim Jesus as their prophet, right? A miracle worker who was also born of a virgin who tells them about the mysteries of God. Buddhists can claim that he was an enlightened one, having achieved enlightenment like the Buddha. I've even heard Hindus who are open to the possibility that Jesus is divine, a reincarnation of their god Vishnu. Even atheists can claim that Jesus is this paradigm of virtue, this revolutionary ethicist that taught us some revolutionary 
moral principle, right? Like do unto others uh, as done unto you. Everyone can pretty much agree with that. And as Christians, we would agree that most of these things about Jesus are true, right? He is a holy man, a miraculous prophet. He was by all account enlightened. I don't know about the whole reincarnation of Vishnu thing, but Jesus was truly a great moral teacher who was way ahead of his time. Things though, as Christians, we don't worship Jesus ultimately because Jesus gave us the best life advice or did the most impressive miracles. He is much more. We as Christians have historically been willing to suffer inconvenience, ridicule, imprisonment, serious physical harm, and even death out of loyalty to Jesus and so that other people can know about Jesus because we believe that he is a truly unique person. The only name under heaven under which we can be saved and the one who is exclusively worthy of worship. So today we'll be continuing our series on the book of Acts and our text will go into why Jesus is this unique person. So for the past couple of weeks, we've been studying Peter's sermon in Pentecost, the day where through the miraculous speaking of tongues, God confirmed that there has been inauguration of a new era, that times have changed. Because as Peter has explained in the first part of his sermon, that what they are witnessing is a confirmation of what the Bible calls the last days, an era where God's Holy Spirit is now poured out on all flesh and that God has opened the gates of salvation to all who call upon his name. So in light of the fact that we can now all be saved, in the passage that we studied last week, Peter draws our attention to the person of Jesus of Nazareth, his life, death, and particularly his resurrection. And Peter's trying to make the case that this real historical event that Jesus has been risen from the grave now changes everything. And in our passage, to conclude his sermon, Peter explains for us why this is such a game changer, right? And he points out at least three things about the identity of Christ that makes him unique. Okay, so our three points. Jesus is unique because one, Jesus is the Christ. Two, Jesus is Lord. And three, we have crucified him. Let me repeat that. Jesus is unique because one, Jesus is the Christ. Two, Jesus is Lord, and three, we have crucified him. Okay, so if you have your Bible out right now, let us turn to Acts chapter 2, verse 29, 37, and may the Holy Spirit give us ears to hear. Point one, okay, Jesus the Christ. So nowadays, someone who knows nothing about what the Bible actually teaches knows that Christ goes with the name of Jesus. It's used now as if Christ is Jesus' last name, right? Even, sadly, now widely used as a profanity that's socially acceptable, not even censored in most TV shows. But Christ isn't simply Jesus' other name. Because when the Bible says that Jesus is the Christ, it actually has something very specific in mind. And to really be able to appreciate that, we need to understand the context of the people uh, who Peter were specifically addressing here. If we look at Peter's sermon and even our text, we can see very clearly that Peter was talking specifically to ethnically Jewish people. Because if you are a devout Jew, even now, you would be living your life praying for and eagerly waiting for something to happen. Because you see, the Jews were a special people. They were uh, God's chosen people in the Old Testament. God's treasured possession and that God had made a covenant with them, promising that he would make them a great nation, the family through whom all the families of the earth will be blessed. And God also promised them a land as their heritage, the land of Israel, where they can live with God in the middle of them, 
being this holy nation under God's rule, being able to worship God freely in His temple. But if you were a Jew, especially back then, you would be constantly, daily made aware that this is not the case. The land that God promised to your people is currently being occupied by another nation. There's a good chance that you don't even live in your homeland, but uh, somewhere else as an immigrant or a minority, probably oppressed and discriminated against. And even though at the time of the book of Acts, there was still this temple in Jerusalem and you still could go to it at that point, And that wouldn't last much longer, by the way, because a few decades later in 70 AD, the temple would be destroyed. That that temple was nowhere near the beauty that the temple once had. So point is, if you're a Jew, life would seem much less than it really could and should be. But if you really study the Hebrew Bible, you would clearly know that the reason why the Jewish people are in this position is because somewhere along the way, your ancestors messed up. They were supposed to live the way God showed them, but they decided to not. They disobeyed God, worshiped other idols, ignore God's warnings and calls to repent. And all this leads to God letting these evil empires like the Babylonian Empire and the Roman Empire in the book of Acts to occupy their land and send them into exile. But if you really did study scriptures, you would know as a Jew that God has promised that he would not be angry forever. That you would not be exiled and oppressed forever, but there will be a time when God will gather his people from where he scattered them. And there will be a time when God will decisively defeat the evil empires and restore the kingdom to Israel. A time when God will make everything right again. And the Bible says that when this time comes, it will be through a future king who will rebuild God's holy temple and rule righteously. This is who the Christ or Messiah in Hebrew is supposed to be. The one God's people is waiting for who will make God's promises come true. So this was what the Holy Spirit was trying to say through Peter when he quoted Psalm 16 in verses 25 to 28 and then explained it in verse 29 and 31. That contrary to what they may have believed, in that psalm, David wasn't talking about himself because David died too and he was buried. But rather, David being a prophet, someone to whom God spoke to directly, and David, knowing that God made a promise to him um, that he will establish his throne forever, to his descendant forever, David was actually thinking of someone else. And Peter was saying that the person David was thinking about was actually Jesus of Nazareth. That he was actually the Christ, the Messiah that the Old Testament was talking about and God had promised to send. The person, people, the people of Israel had been praying and waiting for. And Peter makes, uh, makes the case that this is because, first of all, Jesus was the descendant of David. And the fact that Jesus has been risen from the grave on the third day um, is actually a confirmation that he was the one, right? Because he fulfilled the promise that God would not let his flesh uh, rot in the grave, as he told to David, right? And Jesus, then, is the guy who fulfilled all of these ancient promises, so he's legit. That's, that's Peter's reasoning here. Now though, this would be quite anticlimactic if you were a Jew. Because their understanding is when the Messiah comes, everything will be made right again. They would be free from their oppressors and become this great world-leading nation again. And they expected the Messiah to be this conquering figure, a political and military leader who would raise armies and overthrow governments. But Jesus was a lowly carpenter, was crucified by the Romans. And this is 
why, one of the main reasons why the Jews to this day still reject Jesus as the Messiah, as we Christians claim him to be, right? Because the salvation that Jesus offered was not the salvation they wanted. You see, the Jews, in Peter's day at least, have a hard time believing because they thought their problem was ultimately worldly. And what I mean is this, right? That, they believe, that what they believe they needed to be saved from is the Roman Empire or any other oppressive empire that can threaten them. They thought their ultimate problem was that there are people and these earthly circumstances that's in their way preventing things from how they should be. So their idea of salvation is to be rid of these earthly obstacles. And like Israel, we are all waiting for salvation, aren't we? All of us are aware to some level that there is a way that things sh should be, and that, but they're not, and that there is something fundamentally wrong in the world. There's so much grief and suffering we see around us, we can't help to feel that the world shouldn't be like this. And all of us believe that there must be some sort of solution for it. Right? Perhaps like Israel in the time of the book of Acts, that you see, think that the basic problem is that there are these corrupt and evil systems of oppressions in the world that takes away our freedom, that prevents our flourishing, that causes suffering. So in that case, the solution might be a political or military one in your mind. Or perhaps you think that people suffer because they don't have enough resources or capabilities to deal with the problems they have. So we can think that better education, good governance, more money, a vaccine, or more advanced technological innovation is a solution to the world's biggest problems. We can even think that the basic problem that we have is that we're helplessly stuck in some transcendent system that causes us to suffer, right? Like the karma system where bad things happen to bad people if we do bad things. Or that God himself uh, is actually testing us and sends blessings and curses based on the things we do. In which case, the solution is to do good deeds and be more religious. And though those things might be problematic, Christianity teaches this, that the problem is not, are not the evil powers that be or our poverty, but these systems of injustices and oppression are really the culmination and the consequence of a more fundamental issue, right? The issue, the selfishness, greed, and evil that corrupts every human heart. You see, the Bible teaches us that we are really enslaved, not by ultimately anything external. Because the unique claim of Christianity is actually that we are the problem. It is the sinfulness of the human heart that ultimately causes these unjust systems that disadvantage some for the benefit of others and ruins the relationship we have with our fellow humans. You know, uh, if you ever see a moldy bread, right? You know why you can't just cut the moldy parts off and eat the unmoldy part of the bread? Because the mold that we see is actually just a part of the mold that spread through the entire bread. Likewise, our sinful behavior is just a little manifestation of a deeper problem that has spread deeply in our hearts. And this problem is so bad that it's impossible for us to fix it ourselves. Because even if we can hide our sinful behavior or try as best as we can to channel it elsewhere, the sinful desires of our hearts will still be there. And we can't help to do what we know is wrong. As Paul says in Romans 7, right? For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, 
but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. We cannot stop hurting those we love. We cannot stop saying things that we regret. We constantly think of ourselves first and our hearts covet what others have, slanders others in our hearts, lust after things we should not. Friends, the problem is not me versus the world. The problem is me against me. We have all fallen short of the glory of God. And this is what ultimately will kill us and separate us from God forever. This is the slavery that God sent His one and only begotten Son to free us from. This is ultimately why we need a Messiah, a Christ. Because the only way for us to be free of this slavery of sin is if God first would send someone who was not guilty of sin himself to take on the fullness of humanity's sins and suffer the consequences on our behalf, taking the punishment for us. Jesus of Nazareth was this person and he did it for us on the cross. And the fact that this truly happened in human history among many witnesses and is well tested for, and that he truly was raised from the grave, confirms that this sacrifice was acceptable to God and that we can breathe free from our sin, that Jesus was the real deal. He was really the one God sent. But you see, even though God told Israel, his own people, through his word, through his prophets in the Bible, that he was sending someone for them, most of them did not receive him. Because they misunderstood what they ultimately needed to be saved from. And because they failed to see that the Christ has come and completed his mission, actually, to save his people, they also failed to honor the second thing Scripture said the Messiah would do, that he would reign over his people as Lord. So point two, Jesus is Lord. So after Peter makes the case um, that Jesus' resurrection confirms that he is indeed the Messiah that Israel was waiting for, the Savior foretold by the Scriptures, we see in verses 33-35, Peter begins to explain to us um, that he is still at work even now when his physical body is no longer on this earth. And in these verses, Peter brings into view three things. And we can immediately notice the first thing that Peter says he's doing in verse 33 that he is exalted at the right hand of God. See, being at the right hand of God means that Jesus has advanced to the ultimate position of prominence, meaning that now the resurrected Christ has the highest favor with God and shares authority, right? We use this term today when we meet someone who is the boss's right-hand man. We treat this person with the same respect as we would the boss himself. Because his judgment over us and his decisions is basically the same as the boss's. He is the proxy of the boss himself. And the Bible tells us that being God's right hand, being God's proxy, means that Jesus is given the name above every other name. In fact, he has been given the glory that he had with the Father before the world began. And Peter even explains this in 1 Peter 3, his letter. That this means that all angels, authority, and powers have been subjected to him. The Messiah King, friends, reigns not only over his people, but is made sovereign over all creation. The one to whom all power in heaven and earth has been given unto, and the one to whom the Father has entrusted all judgment. Maybe Christians don't need to be afraid of Christ's authority. Because in Hebrews 7.25, tells us that in heaven, the risen Christ ever lives at the right hand of the Father, 
to intercede on our behalf before the Father. Like how in 1 John 2 verse 1, it says that Jesus is our advocate with God, meaning the risen Christ as King is in the presence of God appealing for us, relaying to God the depth of His love that made Him willing to die for us, defending our complacence and failures before God, saying to Him, I have paid for it. I have died for them. They are mine and they are free. So even though we are still flawed and our works are often tainted with sin, it is still possible for it to be acceptable to the Father. And there, Jesus also gives us access to the throne of grace that we may find mercy in our time of need. Because Jesus is there interceding for us. This is why, friends, when Christians pray to God, we say in Jesus' name before amen. You see, Jesus is in charge and he's on our side. Jesus didn't only unlock the gates of heaven, but He keeps them open for us. And through Him, we have this inside channel, right? This personal connections with God. We Indonesians know especially well how helpful ada kenalan can be, especially when we don't have any rights or are entitled to any kind of special treatment. This is great news, considering what the case would be otherwise. And while... Jesus is at the right hand of the Father advocating for us. As Peter secondly says in verse 33, that Jesus also poured out His Holy Spirit to His disciples that He had promised to give them when He was still on earth. If we read the Gospel accounts, it's clear that Jesus told His disciples, and He was well aware that He was not going to be physically with us forever. And He knew that the life His disciples will live after He goes won't be easy. Not only do we have to fight our own internal battles against our own sinful tendencies, we also have to go against the evil of the world that tempts us, mocks us, and even oppresses us, making it much harder to follow Christ rather than the world. But John 14 tells us that even so, our Lord will not leave us as orphans. He will ask the Father to give us another helper that will be with us forever. This is the promise of the Holy Spirit. And He says, then, when we receive the Holy Spirit, you will know that I am my Father, you in me, and I in you. John 14, verse 20. You see, through the promise of the Holy Spirit, Jesus remains with us. For through the Spirit, we have the actual presence of Christ, which guides and protects us. And when we are wrong, corrects us, teaching us to be sinless like Jesus is and empowering us to do so. And it's also the second thing what the Spirit does. The Spirit gives us power. In Ephesians 4.10 tells us that Christ ascended far above all the heavens that He might fill all things. And Paul continues to say that um, in doing this, Christ furnishes His followers with the gifts necessary to build His church. Teachers, pastors, evangelists, leaders, administrators, all the gifts that we need to build each other up and to proclaim the gospel of Christ, that we may be united and mature in Christ. So through the Spirit, friends, we can participate in God's work. We are all useful and valuable in the eyes of God. So the Holy Spirit does not only connect us to God and to Christ forever, connects us to each other. It restores the relationship that's been ruined by sin. Peter was saying there in verse 33, that the fact those men in Jerusalem witnessed these extraordinary events in Pentecost is a confirmation that this Holy Spirit that Jesus promised has been sent. 
Therefore, we can have it too. Now, you might be thinking though, how do I know if the Holy Spirit is with me? I never saw anyone speak in tongues uh, spontaneously. I've never spoken in tongues myself. Well, I would say, look again to John 14, especially verse 26, when Jesus says, But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. See, friends, the proof of the Holy Spirit is that there is this still small voice that rebukes you of your sin and encourages our faithfulness to Christ and brings to our mind the teachings of Christ. Every Christian knows what I'm talking about. And Jesus is saying, this is the Holy Spirit's work. Because on our own, our sinful hearts would never see Christ and understand Him. And this work of the Holy Spirit, knowing that He does this for us, should give us the peace, can give us the peace that we need to not be troubled or afraid. Even though the struggle is real and the world can often look like it's falling apart. Because we know that we are not going through this alone. Not only does our Savior lives, He is King, He is for us, and He is with us. Now the third thing, right? After Christ has been exalted to the position of power on our behalf, and as He is presently empowering us and comforting us through the Holy Spirit, look at the psalm Peter quotes in verse 34 and 35. That thirdly, Christ as Lord is waiting to make His enemies His footstool. Friends, God is not letting sin just run rampant in this world forever. There will come a day when God will cleanse the world of evil once and for all. When the risen Christ will deliver the kingdom to the Father and He will come in power, manifesting fully His glory to deliver us from sin. And every rule, every authority and power, physical or spiritual, who are aligned with evil will be destroyed forever. And the final enemy, death, will be defeated. And on that day, sin will be no more. And all creation may finally glorify God and enjoy Him forever. This, friend, is how the fullness of the promises of God are fulfilled. Not through some earthly kingdoms or improvement on our physical circumstances, but by the comprehensive defeat of our ultimate enemy, sin. Now, we don't know when that day comes, um, and uh, nobody can speak for God to say why it hasn't come either. But Jesus did say in Matthew 24, verse 14, that before this happens, the gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the world, the whole world, as a testimony. And we're close, but it hasn't happened yet. Okay, but I hope we can see, brothers and sisters, in the Lordship of Christ, that the work that Jesus as Christ and Lord is a thorough one. Through His death and resurrection, the Messiah has freed us from the punishment of sin. Now, through the Holy Spirit that He poured on us from heaven, Christ is freeing us from the practice of sin. And when He returns in power to subject all things under His feet, we will be freed from the presence of sin. His victory is holistic and total and absolute. And this is why, friends, we worship Jesus as Christians. Not only because He was an enlightened one, a great moral teacher, and a prophet who revealed to us the mysteries of God. He did that for sure. But He was the one anointed by God to fulfill the promises 
to deliver us completely from the power of sin. And he did that not by silver of gold, but by shedding his precious blood on the cross. He is the Christ. And having purchased us with his blood, right, and made us his treasured possession, Christ defends and perseveres the enjoyment of this salvation that he freely gives by sending us from heaven, his Holy Spirit, to perfect us unto salvation until he comes again. He is Lord. Amen. But far from rejoicing and celebrating his coming. The world did not receive its Savior, nor honored him. We didn't even recognize him. We didn't want the salvation he offers. Instead, we betrayed him, we humiliated him, and in the end, we crucified him. Which is, and I promise you this is going to be brief, point three. We crucified him. Look at how Peter ends his sermon in verse 36. After summarizing the two central points about Jesus which he covered, that he is Christ and he is Lord. He makes the bold claim about our position in relation to him. He says, Jesus whom you crucified. Now, Jesus, I mean, Peter here was talking about uh, the people of Israel specifically. Because even though the Romans were the ones who physically nailed Jesus on the cross, in Matthew 27, 25, after Pilate washed his hands of the guilt from sentencing Christ to crucifixion, the crowd of Jews there said, His blood be on our hands and on our children. They took the responsibility for Jesus' death and even passed it on to their children. Now, I highly doubt that any of us descended from anyone present there or even anybody from the nation of Israel, but we all inherit this guilt. Because in John 3, verse 19 to 20, it says, And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light, because their works are evil. For everyone who does wicked things and hate the light, and does not come to the light, lest his work should be exposed. Everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light. So it was all of us, friends. The ones who hate Jesus, the light, are all who love darkness and does wicked things. We are the ones who called for him to be crucified and rejected him. This is all of us, right? It's our sins that made it necessary both for Christ to come and die for us and it was what made us reject the Christ, the Lord's anointed, such that he was crucified too. Everyone who rejects him and puts him to shame, crucify him and are guilty. See, and even worse, in the book of Hebrews, it says that if we've been enlightened, if we have shared in the Holy Spirit and the goodness of the word of God, if we claim to be Christian and appreciate the Bible, yet we sin unrepentantly and fall away ultimately. Hebrews 6, 6 says that we basically crucify Christ again because we put him to open shame. And Hebrews 10 says that we sin deliberately after receiving knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. For we have trampled underfoot the Son of God, profaned the blood of the covenant, and outraged the Spirit of grace. Brothers and sisters, if we are unrepentant about our sins and delight in them, we are putting Christ to shame. We're saying that the gospel does nothing, that the Christ was crucified like everyone else, that his death was meaningless. And this is a huge disrespect to God. We would be as, we are as bad, and I would say even worse than the crowd in Jerusalem before Pilate. 
when we crucify Christ in our hearts like that and deny the Son of Man. Scary, isn't it? Should be. But the good news is that if we come humbly before the Lord with a broken and contrite heart, if we confess our sins to God, He is faithful to forgive. And though your sins be like scarlet, they can be like wool, they can be white as snow. Because as terrible as our sins are, as corrupt as our hearts are, as prone are we to wander and fall, God's grace is deeper and more powerful than our sins. As Romans 5.20 says, where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our hearts that God raised him from the grave, we will be saved. And we too will be free from our guilt and be given the Holy Spirit who will work in us and perfect us unto salvation so that we can walk with God towards glory, cooperating with Him as we are washed clean of our sins and made new. So my brothers and sisters, I'll end the sermon with this. Will you repent and stop crucifying the Christ, the Lord of glory in your hearts, in your sins, and accepting Jesus as Lord? I pray that you will. Let's pray. Father in heaven, who are we, O oh Lord, to receive such a great gift from you that you would send your son to us even though we have rejected you, even though we often forget who you are. Lord, impress upon our hearts through your Holy Spirit that you are Lord and that you have died for us. Let us take comfort in what you have done for us and not anything else the world offers, but in you alone. And allow us to be broken about our sins that we may come to you and repent and actually receive the grace that you offer to honor you as our Messiah, as our Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.